0: Good evening mate, I just uh, first of all introduce myself um, because you may be thinking, who's this and why is he here? Um, my name is Ian Dennis, I'm the senior football reporter for BBC Radio 5 Live and uh, I was basically asked here because uh, Tony couldn't get anybody else to, uh, to do it for him. Um, but it is a, it's an honour and a privilege to be here, not just because it's obviously a prestigious venue, but also to work with Tony for somebody who I've known for a number of years And to have that trust as well um, is is something very special and uh, and is appreciated. Um, I've done my research because Tony had basically said, you've got to bring your A game. So I don't know if um, Richard Ford or Thomas Brooks are in the audience as well, but I noticed on the website, there was a, they had a debate about the merits of Tony's management style and it's a shame that they're actually not in the, in the room tonight because I thought that would have been interesting to, to meet him face-to-face. Face. So, <laughs> but I've seen the various Q&As and, and the format's not going to change. Um, we'll just have 20 minutes or so of getting to know Tony and then we can open the floor and then you can ask, ask the questions, as you would do to whether it be Rio Ferdinand or Piers Morgan, um, who have also been here, of course, as well. Um, Tony, first of all, just from your point of view, growing up in Newport, down by the docks, that upbringing, how do you think that has
1: shaped your life? Well, I think it shaped it um, enormously, really. I was born into uh, a family um, that lived in a three bedroom terraced house. Um, There were six children, four boys, two girls um, and mum and dad. Um, And the older we got, mum and dad moved into the box room. The two girls had uh, the bigger room and the four boys slept in one bed in one room. And um, dad was a steel worker. Mum was a housewife, never moved from the kitchen um, and you know although it sounds as though it was tough and it was hard, it was an absolute fantastic upbringing, you know the community down in South Wales, it was, uh, what was it, one, two, three steelworks around the town, obviously the coal came from the, um, from the valleys down to the docks where it was you know, exported elsewhere or, or, or transferred to the steelworks. So you had dockers and miners working together and steel workers and and it it was, yeah, it was fabulous. Tough, um, but absolutely fantastic as a, a place to be brought up. You know, we sometimes went short and if we ever went short, mum would always go next door and the Joneses or the Phillips or whoever it was would always help with a pint of milk, lend us some milk or give us some bread or whatever. And we would do the same vice versa. It was just a tremendous um, community in respect of everybody sticking together. Obviously, you had your your rogues and you had the trouble and you had everything else that, that you associate in life. But um, I never, ever thought that, that I missed out on anything in, in that uh, upbringing. Do you still think that
0: community spirit now is something that, that the country misses because it, it's not as it used to be?
1: Well, I think you, you have to move with the times. I don't think you can you can always look back and say well it was better then the more it is today There's, there's lots of things today that you know i wish we could have had when we were younger um, and i wish my mum and dad were still alive as well to see the you know the the, the bits of success that i've had we lost mum and dad pretty early um, but no you know it it, it it was what it was and everybody got on with it and like, like i say, until i moved i joined bristol rovers or signed apprenticeship forms when i was 15 left school i just turned 16. Um, so that was obviously the last time then that, that you know, I, I, I lived at home, although I went home on weekends. My home then was in Bristol. And um, yeah, it gave me a, a very, very solid sound base of which I, you know, I've built my life on, really. You went
0: out to the Far East. I bet you'd love to go to the Far East now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I spent um, eight months in Hong Kong. It, it's a, it's a, a good story, really. Um, I met my wife when I was 18, Debs was three years older than me and um, our times had changed. And we, we wanted to buy a house in Bristol and Debbie wouldn't move in unless we were married so we ended up courting each other until I was 24. We were courting for, and that means going out, um, we were going out together for, for six years. Um, and I had an opportunity, uh, Ron Wiley, who was, who'd been a manager at Aston Villa, had, had moved out to Hong Kong and managed one of the, the, the big clubs out there. And they were looking for a, um, a tough midfield player to go out there and play for eight months. And the money was, was very, very good. And it actually gave me enough money to put a deposit down on this house that me and Deb were, were very, very keen on getting. So I, I went to Hong Kong and, and I have to say for the first three months I really, really struggled um, in respect of everything, you know, the weather, you know, the way they lived their lives, the lot. It was just, it was too much for for me, in in some respects. And I, I, there was times where I, th- I really thought, blind I, you know, I just want to go back home. But then the further I grew into it, the more I enjoyed it. And after Christmas, Deb came out at Christmas time, and spent a month with me, and. Um, I think most probably her being out there and, and everything else relaxed me. I became more inclined to, to work their, their way and, and live their way. You know, I started eating my food with chopsticks instead of demanding that I had a knife and fork and was, was civilized. It, it was, yeah, it was fantastic. It was a wonderful experience. And um, the club I played for was Happy Valley. Um, and for years, and I mean years, Every Christmas, the first card I got at Christmas time was always from that football club. You know, they looked after me so, so well. It it was wonderful. And I found, you know, that uh, the Chinese were really, really wonderful people, wonderful people.
0: I don't know if you know, but Tony's got a huge passion for for history and I just wonder if you left home at 16 and you had this 17 year playing career, where did that history, that passion for history come from?
1: It was just, it was just, I I used to always look at, you know, people, people who had achieved, overachieved in their lives and people who had done things special. I know people have talked about Napoleon and the books that I've read on Napoleon, but it was everything. It was, it was, I, I'm not an expert, but I like to read about people who have, you know, have come from nothing um, and, and overachieved or done something special in their lives. And, um, yeah, you know, he fascinated me. You know, Churchill was a wonderful leader of his time, but Churchill didn't fascinate me because he was part of establishment. He had had the the backing of the establishment in this country and had not used it, but it certainly had helped him get to where he got. And during the the Second World War, he was definitely absolutely outstanding and and was a great, great leader of this country. Um, But I was more interested, like I said, about Napoleon, who was born on little island Corsica just off or just in the mediterranean to a wealthyish family and then he, he left home I think he was 12 years of age or whatever um, you, you'll correct, correct me I went to uh, you know, school in France and then built himself up and I wanted to find out how he went from that to becoming what he was um, and, and producing one of the the great um, empires in, in, in Europe.
0: Just talk about your, your playing career because obviously you then came back to Bristol Rovers
1: didn't you? Yeah I'd, I'd had a, an agreement with, um, with Bristol that I'd go out and then I'd come back after a year and, and Bobby Gould was manager there I, start, I, start, I made my debut at 17 years of age um, in a Bristol derby actually I played against Bristol City um, and then had injuries I had two very very poor injuries when I was very young which curtailed me a little bit but ended up playing at Bristol for about 10 years and even from a young age you know I, I, I damaged my ankle very badly at Cambridge actually um, in, a, in a game in the championship and was out for nine months and in that period of time from tw- from 20 to 21 I actually decided I wanted to do all my coaching badges I didn't want to sit around and just mope about so I went out and did my inter- uh, my prelim intermediate and full badge and I was one of the the youngest people ever to to qualify or get that certificate Um, and it just, it was always in the back of my mind that one day playing would finish and I I wanted to stay in the game Um, and I would go anywhere and I mean anywhere to watch you know coaches work um, on a Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, wherever it took. Um, I used to go to Lillyshaw, this country used to hold a week's coaching sessions at Lillyshaw I'm from 23, 24 years of age. I'd be the first one every year to, to enroll, to go to Lillyshaw, to watch the great coaches coach. And when I talk about great coaches, I talk about people like Don o, Dave Sexton, um, Venables, Bobby Robson. Um, there was fantastic. We had um, Italian coaches coming over, French coaches. It was just a wonderful week. Um, and being a young lad and still playing, it, it was just wonderful to be able to see these top coaches Coaches work and talk, and having a drink with them in a bar afterwards. And so, with, without consciously working and, and, and trying to preempt my career, um, I always had it on the back of my mind that I wanted to stay in this wonderful game.
0: You'll have to tell the story though about when you were going up to Grimsby in the tax
1: disc. That was my first job. I got I got my Harry was my, Harry, I think Harry's been here. Harry Redknapp was my manager. Harry had uh, signed me. Um, and I went down to Bournemouth and um, we had a successful four years. I had a successful four years playing and, and Harry had always wanted me to get it, even at that age, I was 27, 28 then, he wanted to get me on the coaching side and I wanted to play um, for as long as I could. actually left the club and then went back to the club, went to Gillingham for a year to play, had a bad injury. Harry then re-signed me and I went back in as a coach. And then Harry left and went to West Ham... To help Billy Bonds and Norman Awood, who was the chairman at uh, at Bournemouth at, at the time, offered me the job. And the only reason he offered me the job was because I was the cheapest, you know, the the, the cheap, cheapest option for him. And um, one day we went up to Grimsby to watch a player. We drove up middle of November, December time, and it took us about six and a half, seven hours to get up there, and we didn't get back in until about three o'clock in the morning. And I had this, he bought me this old Volvo, it was about 20 years old and um, we'd gone up in his car but my old Volvo had been sat on this roundabout all day and it, obviously it was iced up. And when we got back, I said to him, can you help me get the, 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 the ice off the, the windscreen, or?" So he took out his credit card and started scraping the, the, the windscreen and I've gone round the back to try and scrape a bit off the back and all of a sudden he screams, he just shouted out I can't believe it, I can't believe it and I walked round the back, I honestly didn't know what was happening and I said, what's up Norm? he said, the tax disc, they've given you a six month tax disc I told them, three months at the most (laughs) it was my first management job and I just realised then he'd given me three months, three months.
0: That managerial instability is something now, it's, it's, it's prevalent these, these days. But I just wonder in the, in the lower leagues, your time there, Gillingham, how crucial is that grounding?
1: Well, I was as I've said to the lads who were in, in before, um, you've got to be lucky and, and I've been lucky at times in life. I had two years at Bournemouth and we sold everybody at Bournemouth. You know, Ari had left going to West Ham and the club was financially um, really, really tight. And we sold, I bought people like Joe, you won't remember I'm Joe Parkinson from Wigan for 20,000, sold him for 800,000 to Everton. Um, we, we sold about three, four million pounds worth of players. And, and I then had to revert to, to playing youngsters. And we stayed up in the, in that, uh, the old third division. What is now the first division, um, for two years. Um, and at that time then, you know, my time was up, the supporters had got fed up with me and um, Norman had squeezed the pips out of me and it, it was time for me to move. And I left and I wasn't a name, I wasn't a player that you know, you could say he was a Premier League player or top player, so he was a name, so let's give him a chance. You know, he's you know, he's not an ornament that we can place somewhere and say, Look, it's so and so and we've got this big name coming into the club. I was just a, an Amanega, just a, an average player. And I've, I've got to say, the year I'd spent at Gillingham as a player, I met the chairman there, Tony Smith, who was a wonderful, wonderful person. And he's still a great friend to this day. And Tony sold the club to Paul Scally. And I'm absolutely convinced, I've never pulled Tony on this, but I'm absolutely convinced that Tony, uh, part of the deal was that Paul Scally appointed me as the manager. And then I had four years at Priestfield and, and was very, very successful. And then that was the, the, the break I needed really to, to take my career on. If I hadn't got that break, I wouldn't be here talking now.
0: We all know in the room your success that you had at Stoke City and transforming Stoke City and West Bromwich Albion are now eighth from the table. What, what, where do you gain your greatest source of pride from for what you've achieved at whichever club that may be?
1: I th- I, you've got to say Stoke because when I went into Stoke uh, and there was you know we were getting 11,000 crowds um, there was foreign owners the first time around the first two years I was there the Icelandic were running the club um, they had an Icelandic they'd just finished with a, a they'd had a, a poor breakup with an Icelandic manager and then going in on the back of that they were trying to wind the club down um, and the, the two years I spent with the Icelandic people and I really liked them I thought they were decent people um, their knowledge of the game and their knowledge of what was necessary was, was in some ways miles apart from what I thought. Um, but it was again, it was a good experience. And then leaving, going to Plymouth and being successful at Plymouth and then Peter Coates coming in. Peter had been a, a chairman at Stoke and had tried to to recruit me on two other occasions and I would said no to him. Um, and then he came back and I said yes. And it was the best thing I ever did. He was... You know, I'd lost my dad at the time, and and um, uh, Peter was like a father figure to me. Uh, he understood that I was very focused, very determined, obsessive, to a point where I could be, you know, I could, I could be um, irritable, to put it nicely. Um, and Peter managed me, and he managed me through those eight and nine years uh, better than any uh, any other person I've ever worked with. He was. He was absolutely fantastic in the way he managed me and, and got, my, got everything focused on, on one thing. I would be and get frustrated with everything connected with the football club if it wasn't done properly. And I think what Peter did, Peter just focused me for a while just on the team and being successful with the team. Have
0: you mellowed now?
1: Yeah, I, I think I don't, I'm not so sure I've mellowed. I think what I've done, I've moved, moved with the times. You know, people are different now to when I started. It's a different society. People are made up differently. And I, I think if you don't move with the times, then you get left behind. And I think you have to accept and you have to be, you have to you know, understand that you have to do that. I still have my moments. And I still think that discipline, respect, an organization, a wonderful world of uh, words. And um, without them, I don't think any organization can be successful.
0: Which I mentioned that the two students from earlier, Richard Ford, when he was talking about Stoke City, had argued that consistency is mistaken for stagnation by the Stoke board. But Thomas Brooks, the counter argument was, is that Stoke should be satisfied with uh, with the mid-table stability. Is there a, ca- a danger sometimes in this modern world that we live in that you can overachieve and then you you raise the expectations, which then can be counterproductive?
1: Well, I think that happens all the time. I think what um i lad missed out on was that we got to a cup final and we got to, what was it the last, where's my mate who's a Stoke supporter, was it was the last 16 or last 32 and went to, went to Valencia and had some wonderful, wonderful trips in Europe and I think the, um, you know, the cup final and the European experience coupled with the, the time in the Premiership was, was absolutely fantastic.
0: Is it harder now to manage than ever before?
1: Yes. Why? Well, I think every year it gets out. I think there's more money in the game, um, and that affects the situation. I think I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a great advocate of the academy system. I think the kids are given far, far too much too soon. Um, I think the whole setup. I think if you go to any sport, across the board, and you want to get elite, top, top performers, you know they are driven from a young age. They are driven and driven and driven. You get to professional football and actually what they do, they, they actually make it easier for them before they've achieved anything. And I think that takes the edge off the, the, the young players within the game. And I'm a, like I say, I'm a great believer that, um, you know, youngsters have to be set up in a certain way to achieve their maximum. Some, as, you know, I talk about, I talk about Gary Mabbott. you'll get the individuals who, irrespective of the way they're brought up, they have it in them, but others need to be directed and re- really need to be pushed and pulled to get them into that slot that takes them on to, to becoming a top, top athlete and a top, top performer.
0: How, hypothetical question, I know, but would you back your money on the 16-year-old of a Tony Pulis coming from Newport to succeed or a 16-year-old coming out of the academy? Who do you think has got a greater chance of?
1: Well, I, I, that's a difficult one, Ian, because we've got a lad called Sam Fields at the football club now, who's, who's come from a, 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 a quite a wealthy family, and his attitude is absolutely fantastic. He's a, you know, he's a, he's a chip off the old block. So the the, the people at the, the the youngsters are there, Ian. My my biggest problem with it, with it is it's just overmanned, overforced. You know, it, it, we're talking about, you know, elite, and it is an elite system, the Premier League, an elite league, the best in the world. It's a world league, it's not just an English league. So we have to produce, our, our own grown players have to be the best and I, I just don't think we go way, you know, the way around it. Um, it's is not right for me. Any questions? Hello. Um, you spoke about um, you not being a name and um, there being an element of risk-taking um, appointing you. Um, the high turnover of football managers is well known, but when it comes to appointing managers, often a lot of the, the people appointed are names or um, they've been around the system for a long time. So what, is there, what hope is there for a young manager coming through when they're seen as a risk? Well, I, I think the, you know, I wouldn't be managing in the premiership if I hadn't taken Stoke into the premiership. And I think you could go, at the, you know, you have a look at uh, the, the, the managers. Eddie Howe's done it at Bournemouth and is now managing in the, in the Premiership. Um, Burnley manager Sean Tice. So you've got ones who have, you know, Sam managed lower leagues and then got into the Premiership. So you, you have to accept, uh, unless you're, you know, a real named player, um, that you're going to have to, you know, you do your apprenticeship lower down um, and, then, and then step into it. Um, and, that, and that you have to accept that, you know. They, and, and there's great experience to be gained from working lower down. Yep. How do you think Mark Hughes is doing at State City? No comment. No, it's 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 difficult for me to to comment on a former club. No, I think he's done it. You know, they finished in the top ten the last three years. I know, obviously. Still having connections there. People are moaning and groaning that, that things have stagnated and not moved on. Um, but the big thing with, with what you've got to understand and recognise, outside the top six or seven clubs in the Premiership, the most important thing is, is that you remain there. Because that gives you then the, the finance then to build and to build and to build. And, and we've always said, and I, I always think it's important that you do this, is that an FA Cup final... Getting to Europe and staying in the Premiership is fantastic success if if you can achieve it, and you know that that obviously goes with the Premiership being. If you say to any chairman outside the top seven, what's th- what's the priority this year? They'll say just staying in the league.
0: Yep, the gentleman on the front. Whilst the the microphone's been passed around, how key is stability?
1: I I, I think stability is is. is is, is absolutely vital if you want to build a football club and and take the football club forward. The problem we have today is that everything is instant. Everybody wants instant success. And if you don't achieve and achieve and achieve and keep moving up, people are going to moan and groan. And as a manager, you have to accept that. It's no good, you know, holding anything against people. People just want more and they expect more. And um, sometimes a change freshens things up for a while. Um, and then that club will drop in to what it, it, it was before. You know, there has been good changes this year at certain clubs where, where things have improved. Um, but over a period of time, will that be maintained? I don't know. On the front row.
0: Tony, um, you've been a manager for a long time in football and you've been in football throughout this incredible evolution of it. One of the biggest things that's changed is the increasing amount of money that's in the game. You yourself came from a very humble background. How do you handle, what are the challenges involved with managing players that have come from humble backgrounds and suddenly been transformed into incredibly wealthy people with people around them that want to take advantage of that wealth? And also, what were the lessons you learned from dealing with what happened with Saido Berahina? What were the most important things you learned with that?
1: Yeah, it's, a, it's a, a part of management now that you have to, uh, you have to get your head around. Um, that you know, and I'm talking about apprenticeships or apprentices and, and young players who are earning, you know, some of the top young players at, at the top five or six clubs in this country will be earning high twenties, thirty thousand pounds a week, and that's before they even kick the ball in in, in in men's football. So you're dealing with with people who are very, very affluent, very rich, who are being, you know, people are blown in their ear every day that they are going to be superstars. You know, they haven't got one agent, they've got about five agents hanging around them. they have all the other social aspects that we didn't have to deal with, the internet, everything that revolves around the internet. So it it is very, very difficult. Um, I try hard to find out what their background's like, what their parents are like, what their upbringing's been like, and you try very, very hard to, you know, to help them if you possibly can, but, you know, Sido, for example, I found a lovely lad. I didn't have a problem with Sido. The, the only issue with Sido was that you always knew there was people in the back of the bus ready to talk to him as soon as you'd finished. So you could drive him a certain way. And then as soon as he left, I always felt, and I might be wrong and Sido might disagree with me, but I always felt there was someone else blowing in his ear and he could be absolutely fantastic when you spoke to him but a different person, because of the information he was getting from other people.
0: The gentleman on the second row of the, the green, ja- uh, green jumper. Uh, hi Tony, so you, uh, a lot of people t- uh, talk today about the relationship between the fans and the club for example like there's a lot of pressure with arsenal they're saying the fans all want uh, wenger to leave i was just wondering how exactly does that play on the relationship between the board and the manager and how do, are you aware of uh, the fans opinions on you or do you try and block it out
1: yeah i, th- I well i th- i think you have to accept you know that the supporters pay their money and they go to the games and they have a right to to voice their opinion um I think gone are the days that that, that supporters can say, I'm actually paying your wages, um, because Sky Television and the other broadcasting people actually pay such an enormous amount of money now that that most Premier League clubs could survive without any crowds in their ground. Um, But supporters are the lifeblood of of football clubs. And, you know, it's, uh, I understand... Um, their views, whether it's good or bad, and you have to accept their views, whether it's good or bad, and you have to manage those views. And again, it's a part of management that has become more difficult, again, with social media. You know, that you can have six or seven people on social media starting or igniting a flame that grows into a massive fire. And, And really, and truthfully, it could be 20 people doing it, and everybody thinks it's everybody. So you, you have to deal with it. You have to manage with it and manage it. Wenger has been at Arsenal for, or is it over 20 years now? He's experienced enough to understand the situation. He's experienced enough to, to get through the situation. And I think, as I've said before, I think he will stay. I don't think he'll leave.
0: Yeah, gentleman at the uh, at the back there with the pink shirt on. Just talking about social media. Do you have a, a rule in the changing room about phones away at a certain time?
1: Yeah, you try, but I think the, you know, I I came I went to um, Portugal last week to watch sport in Lisbon and Benfica on the Saturday, and then to watch Porto play on the Sunday, and I came came down a lift um, when I was in Lisbon. And there was an American guy on his uh, mobile phone tweeting away or whatever he was doing. And we got out of the lift and I just said to him, I said, excuse me. And, and in his American drawl, you know, he, he started talking. I said, how sad it is we've come from the 12th floor. You don't know me and I don't know you. But 10 years ago, we'd have had a chat coming down and you're in the, you know, in the lift and, and we've completely ignored each other. You know, for, for human beings to do that, you know, that really, really annoys me. And um, I said to him, I, I would have been as bad as you because if I'd have had something to deal with, I would have been on my phone, but it's a sad indictment. My wife has banned mobile phones from, you know, we've got grandchildren now. When we sit down for Sunday lunch, no, nobody can take a phone to the table. She wants the family to talk. And that's the, the you know, obviously we've got little ones with us as well, but she, she is adamant that that time should be spent communicating with people and not on those I hope, in, I
0: hope the lad in the West Brom shirt here is going to ask who you are watching. <laughs> we could get ourselves an exclusive of the uh, you scouting at Sports in Lisbon. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Hello Tony, um, I have to ask you a bit of a cheeky question as a Man City fan. Um, the 99 Division 2 playoff final. You were minutes away from winning the game and then Kevin Horlock and Paul Dekoff scored those two fantastic goals. And Matt he went up. What went wrong for your team?
1: What went wrong? Yeah. Those last five minutes Blinking <laughs> referee added, what was his name? Alsi. Mark Alcy, I've never forgiven him. Um, now we played well that day. We were, we were you know, Mark Saunders, Mr. Header, from with about five minutes to go, just before Dickhoff scored the, the first goal. To make it 3-0 um, and I can remember that one, one thing that sticks in my mind was that uh, we, we sat on benches at Wembley, Wem- Wembley hadn't been recreated then it was the old Wembley and we, they sat us on wooden benches just off the pitch and the Man City sp- uh, supporters were throwing stones at Joe Royal and that the, the, the coaching staff had actually gone to get the police because there was all stones it wasn't health and safety then there was all stones around because they were doing some building work there and um, you know it went from that with half your supporters leaving the stadium and then coming back in when they got the two goals but it's one of those almost it was made up there that it wasn't going to happen for us because we deserved to win that game and unfortunately we got beat on penalties in the end but one, one thing I'll just carry on one thing which I will go to my grave with, which which really, really sickened me afterwards. I was really, really prepared and the team was really prepared for Man City that day. We knew exactly how they would set up. We knew exactly what they were going to do, A lot. We'd had them monitored and watched like you couldn't believe it. And we had 10 days to prepare for that game. And we went to Aston Villa's training ground, came out of Kent because of the hype. We took 35,000 people there. We came out of Kent and we stayed up in the, in the Midlands and we trained at Villa's training ground. And I did, absolutely myself and my coaching staff and the players, we absolutely tore everything down and rebuilt it for that game. The one thing I didn't do, one thing I didn't do, I didn't prepare for penalties in respect of knowing where the goalkeeper would dive. What was his name again? Nicky Weaver. And Nicky Weaver dived one way for the five penalties, every time there was a penalty, he dived to his right. And we had we had coaching staff who had not broken in, but we're just monitoring Man City training. And if <laughs> <laughs> I'll get locked up for saying that, um, and that that I and that was one question I could have asked, and I never asked the coaching staff about. And it was, I actually blamed myself for years afterwards for that one, one little thing that I'd, I'd missed.
0: Was there a hand just next to where you're... Yeah. I was, just going to add. Oh. I
1: was just going to add something to that. Did
0: the heartbreak in 99 give you that added motivation for the 2011 Cup final?
1: No, but 2001 it was different. Man, Man City had just got what I consider to be one of the great Premier League teams then. I, th- I think that you know, they'd spent really well and for us to go into a cup final against the team that won the championship the year afterwards and won it well, you know, with, with, with what the players that have just come into their end now, that they, had, they had an unbelievable team Man City. For us to be in the final was fantastic. We were praying and I, I shouldn't say this because Alex will kill me or Sir Alex will kill me, we were praying that Manchester United would beat Man City in the semi-final. That's how good we thought Man City were.
0: Uh, Rory Dillap and the long throw. What, why do you think it was so effective and do you think we'll see anything that creative like cause so much havoc again?
1: Well, Fuchs actually throws it quite well for Leicester. There's other, there's other teams now who use it. We actually didn't... When we signed Rory, there's two great stories with Rory. We, we took Rory DeLapp from, from Sunderland I think we paid a million, £1.5 million for him. And we couldn't sign him. We couldn't sign him permanently because the transfer window would close. So we signed him on loan with a guarantee that we would sign him at the end of the season. And his first game was actually against Sunderland. So we was playing, and, and Roy Keane was manager at Sunderland at the time and allowed us to play him. And Rory broke his leg and was out for 18 months. And my chairman, Peter Coates, who I've just spoken about, actually paid that money the next day and said to Rory, irrespective of your broken leg, we're going to look after you, which was absolutely fantastic. The other thing, when we took him from Sunderland, we didn't know he had a long throw. Well, see, that's, that's honestly, we, we, we didn't know he had a long throw. And um, when we got promoted, I ran two people up I rang Steve Koppel, who just, Redding had just got relegated. And, and, and Steve was actually in Bangkok at the time. And I'd rung him and and asked him the difficulties of the Premiership. So I went from the bottom and I thought I'd never spoke to Sir Alex at that time. I rang Sir Alex up and the advice he gave me was make the Britannia a place that nobody wants to go. Never mind how you do it, make it a place that nobody wants to go. Because otherwise, no disrespect, irrespective of the players you bring in, you you will struggle. And we narrowed the pitch in. We grew the grass, and then we had Rory as well, and um, we didn't have to irritate Arsene Wenger. Yeah. In lots of ways.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, just in front.
1: Um, we very rarely see English managers going abroad to Europe to manage. Do you think that's more reluctance on behalf of European clubs, or are English managers not putting themselves out there for these jobs? I think there's two two things. I don't think there's enough English managers who speak foreign languages, and that's a detriment to us. I don't think we spend any time doing it. Um, So it's difficult then to, to, it it would be difficult for myself, who spends a lot of time on the coaching field. And I think that I I do, and I can motivate players in in certain ways. Um, But we had, and we have had managers who've gone abroad and, and been very, very successful. So Bobby Robson went abroad and was successful so we have had managers who, who have gone and been successful, but I, the Premiership is where people want to be. But, you know, the top managers now all over the world. I think it's only Simeone, out of the top, top elite managers, who's not managed in England. So, you know, most of the, most of the, the top managers now, they, they want to come and work in England.
0: Yep, yeah, bring it to, to Tom on the front row there. Hey, Tony. Um, you're, a, you're a student of history, you enjoy history, it's a hobby of yours. Historically, who would be your 1 to 11 of all time players? Oh,
1: Tom. Come on. Goalkeeper. <laughs> <coughs> It'd be Banks or Schmeichel. Banks or Schmeichel, okay. Uh, right back. Michael, I don't have to put up with this. <laughs> Cut him off now. Nah, Tom, it, it'd be it'd, it'd be too difficult, honestly. There, there's been so many great players. The the the, the thing, the one thing I'll, I'll I'll mention on this. People talk about Messi being you know the best player ever, you know, and, and the best Argentinian player that, that ever played. I think Maradona was actually better, and I'll tell you for why. Maradona actually by himself, won the league at Napoli. He won the league by himself and actually won, how many tournaments uh, with Argentina was it, two? World Cups and Messi's never done that with a team, I think, that was as good as the team that Maradona played in. So I would go Maradona just because he was an out-and-out winner. And I'll get slaughtered for that. You can tell me in the bar afterwards they want to be level. <laughs>
0: yeah. Tom, just the, the lad just across the way from you. Then we'll try and switch it to the other side after that. Tony, I was just wondering. Um, you spoke earlier in the room about how Guardiola said uh, Messi sometimes won games for him, and how he's one of the greatest ever. It sort of become football folklore when judging <coughs> um, Messi whether he could have done it on a cold, wet, and windy night at Stoke on a Tuesday. <laughs> so I, I just wondered whether genuinely. Because uh, teams like Arsenal struggled, you talk about growing the grass, uh, it was windy because of the stadiums more open and shrink, uh, narrowing the pitch, whether Messi would have struggled at Stoke? No. Nah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he's a genius, you know, he's, he's an absolute fantastic player and, and you know, I've, I've compared him to Maradona just to cut Tom short. Um, but no, I, 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 he, he could play anywhere Messi, he could turn up, turn up on a park's pitch and, and be extraordinary. Extraordinary! He's, he's one of the great, great players. We'll take two questions on this side. Hi. Who would you say is like the smartest manager you've ever had to play against? Like they've done a sub or a tactical thing where you've been like, "Blimey, that's really screwed me." Yeah, um, it's been really, really good to manage against the foreign managers. Um, I think that uh, they've brought something, or they bring something you expect them to bring something um, new to the table, Guardiola, Mourinho, people like that, but um, the best managers. I've been very fortunate to manage against some some of the the top managers and I think it's not the managers that win the games, it's the players who win the games And, and the great teams. You know, we played against Manchester United when Ronaldo was playing. You know, Rooney was at his peak. Giggs, Scholes. You know, they, they, they were a fantastic team. We played against Arsenal when Arsenal had Henry and players like that playing. That were, you know, you know, the invincible team. That were, were just absolutely fantastic. Um, it's it's difficult. I think there's definitely, a, um, and we talked about it in the room before. There's, there's there's a there's a gap between the elite six teams, seven teams, and the rest. And the elite top six, every time you go and visit a top six club, you're hoping and praying that you don't get caught on a bad day. I've had it happen a couple of times. We, we, when I was at Stoke, we went to Arsenal, sorry, went to Chelsea. Chelsea had a fantastic, unbelievable team. When Mourinho was managing and then um, you know the other managers who took his place, we got beat seven, it could have been about 15. They, they were just absolutely fantastic on the day. They just ripped us to bits. Um, but most, most teams stick to a, a pattern, most teams stick to a theme, managers, you can work managers out in what they're going to do and what they're not going to do and you do your best, you, you, you put yourself up against them and try and try, um, and try to, to make it as, d- as difficult as possible um, and if you can grow in the game, if you can stay in the game then, then you get chances.
0: When you said smartest I thought you were talking about attire. I was going to say, who can compete with a baseball and white trainers combo? Yeah, but yeah. they're, they're, not, they're not new trainers every week, are they? They're, they're washed up. No,
1: they? We did, I did an interview with, um, with BBC Wales about a year back and they were absolutely convinced I'd tra- I changed my trainers every week. The kit man's very good at washing them and keeping them going.
0: They just passed the microphone behind you. There's a lad who wants to ask another
1: question. Who was your best ever signing? We've mentioned it. Pound for pound, most probably Ricardo Fuller. Uh, Ricardo um, was—he was a wonderful lad, great. We took him. I think it was Southampton. Harry was manager at the time. Paid about two hundred grand for him, and he could do stuff. He had a change of pace. He was more right-footed than left-footed. Wasn't brilliant in the air, but was strong and had a change of pace and could drop his shoulder and beat people. It could astound you. But he was an absolute pain in the backside. He was a typical Jamaican laid back, oh, I can't say that, or oh, can I say that? Health and safety today will stop me. But, and I'll tell you one story, we, 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 well the lads will tell you, we, we were at the top of the league, th- I think we were second or third at the time. Uh, West Brom were, were, were at the top, I think we were second, Wolves were third. So we had to go to Wolves just after Easter or just before Easter and it was an international break. And Fuller, irrespective of whether Jamaica had games or not, would always go away. There'd be a game. He'd invent a game. <laughs> and, and, and one day, and, and this is the truth, we actually scanned everywhere for this game, and we couldn't find this game. And we actually, when he came back, we, we, we actually pulled him and said, have you put two coats down on the beach and just played against your mates? And then classed that as a game. Anyway, he's got the game on the... The first Saturday, which is a fantastic. You know, we hate it when it's the midweek before the game. So we know he's going to be back a week before the Wolves game, which is a massive game for us. So this game, which we couldn't find again, takes place on the Saturday. So we should be back in on the Monday. So we all report Monday. All the players are back, so we're up and running. Rick doesn't turn up. Tuesday he doesn't turn up. Wednesday I get hold of Dave the physio, Dave you've got to get hold of him, this is the biggest game this club will have, he's, you know, he's got to realise, Thursday we don't see him, so we're thinking you know, he's got to turn up Friday, he's got to turn up Friday, Friday he doesn't turn up, so we've had two weeks now of missing our star player, Mick McCarthy was manager at Wolves at the time and Wolves had a decent team, so on the Saturday we had pre-match at Britannia um, and it was I think um, 11.30 for, and then we had, uh, we had a little chat beforehand and then we all went up and had uh, beans on toast or whatever the players were eating at the time, eggs on toast. About quarter past 12, Ricardo walks in, he had his cap on the side of his head and he dragged himself through the, the room and all the players had really, really Given up on him and, and sort of like we're really, really disappointed that, that he'd really custard pied us for, for the two weeks. So, anyway, he sits on a table by himself, right on the far side. So, I'm next to David Kemp, who's my assistant, and I'm absolutely spitting blood. So, I'm saying to Kempy, I'm going over there now, I'm going to sort him out. He's not playing, not even going to travel. So, Kempy goes, Tone, forget all that. He's our best player. He could win us the game. And I'm going, Kemp, he, he has shown no respect. The players have ignored him. It's not going to be good for them. And Kemp, going, tone, settle down, settle down. So anyway, all the players drift off. The bus is leaving about whatever time it is. It only took us 30 minutes to get to, to Molyneux. So who's left in the corner just scooping up his eggs and his beans was Rick. So I walk over, sit next to him, Rick, where have you been, mate? Gaff, you can't believe it. He said, we played the game on the Saturday. I said, we couldn't find the game, Rick. No, we played the game. Okay, you played the game. What happened? He said, my uncle's mother's uncle's auntie passed away. So I had to go and sort that out for Monday and Tuesday. On Wednesday, the only flight I could get was going into Miami and coming back out. I went to book a flight, couldn't get a ticket. So I had to wait for Thursday. I flew out Thursday got stuck in Miami so that's why I couldn't get back until Saturday load of nonsense but absolutely Ricardo 100% so I go Rick do you realise how important this game is do you realise how important it is to the football club so he goes yep I understand give me the last 20 minutes and I'll win you the game I said Rick what about the first hour and a half where's that gone (laughs) and that was him so I get up Spitting blood. Walk past. Kempi walks out with me. So we sit on the bus. Rick walks. Walks right down the bus. Oblivious to everything. He don't even know the players have have got the ump with him. So he sits at the back of the bus. We get to Molineux. I think we end up scoring the first goal. I think um, Mama goes down right-hand side. Gets a cross in. Rory scores. We go 1-0 up. And then they score one each. And I think um, think Courtney scores from a corner to make it 2-1. And then Wolves end up uh, getting a goal, makes it 2-all, and we're defending, I don't, if you've ever been to are down the slope. And there's about 20 minutes to go, and Kempy goes, time for him, time for him. So he's, I said, he, he won't be ready. So anyway, I, Rick, go and warm up. So he runs up the top end, where all the Wolves supporters are. Runs about 30 metres, stops, walks to the top end, and starts stretching, the worst stretches you've ever seen in your life. So I'm looking at him and the game's going on and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, nah, I can't get him on the pitch. And Kenby goes, Tone, this is his occasion, he'll love this. So I'm thinking, anyway, we, bring, we had a player on loan who's now playing at Preston, I can't remember his name, and, and we take him off, and put Rick on. We're defending corners like you can't believe it. You know, they, they, they've had a real good 10 minutes, Wolves. And we had a ball out and Rick picks it up in the bottom corner. And The lads will tell you, the Stoke supporters in the audience, he gets it and he runs her up the pitch, beats their team, smashes it into the net, runs all the way down the touchline. All the players who have ignored him are jumping all over him now. And it's then Liam scores another goal and we win the game 4-2. So after the game, I'm absolutely drained. I'm sat in the corner. Like all, you know, Well done to all the players when they've come in and then I just leave them, get on with it. Obviously the dressing room is absolutely rocking. I go in my little corner and I sit in the corner and I'm still, still got the ump with him. And all of a sudden from nowhere, Ricardo walks over to me and he puts his hand around me. He says, Gaff, Gaff. So I go, what Rick? He said, Do you know your trouble? So yeah, go and tell me. You worry too much. <laughs> so I go, Rick, Rick, He says, no, listen to me, Gaff, you're always talking. That's why you got no air. You worry too much. And that was him. He got up and walked across the room as though nothing had happened. That was Ricardo.
0: Great story. I've been worried I've overstayed my welcome for for Michael here.
1: No, thank you very much. So um, thank you so much to Tony and um, Ian for this really engaging session.
0: Unfortunately, that is all we have time for. But we're going to go through to the the members bar now, so please feel free to join us. Uh, but remain seated while we leave the room. So please join me in thanking both Tony and Ian on our side.